Today, we're happy to welcome Daniel, private equity and venture capital investment professional at Finvia, a leading multifamily office in Germany serving the special needs of high net worth individuals. Finvia has 4.5 billion euros in assets under management on their platform, investing in funds and building a global portfolio across different strategies and verticals. If you're listening in and love our show, drop us a review, follow the pod and subscribe at eu.vc. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Discover the tech and investment opportunities fueling growth across UAE, MENA and AP MEA regions at Expand, Northstar and Jitex Global. Now, the world's largest tech and startup event. Join 1,400 exhibiting startups and 1,000 investors at Dubai Harbour from the 15th to the 18th of October 2023 to scout for your next big deal, connect with other investors and meet public and private stakeholders to elevate your fund goals. Co-located with Fintech Surge and Future Blockchain Summit and in association with Jitex Global, you'll be serviced with an agenda over four action-packed days with a curated meetings program, the invite-only investor forum, the venture studio and accelerator summit and additionally exclusive satellite events for fund managers in town. Don't miss out and register now at expandnorthstar.com forward slash EUVC. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This is a union of values. Values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new new beginnings. Let's start acting, 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 acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the European VC Podcast. I am David, the LP Syndicate Lead, and as usual, joined by my dear co-founder, Andreas, the LP Hypeman. We are back for another episode of the European VC, straight from Superventor in Mark Penkele, our dear friend from Altitude's apartment. And we're here with Daniel Schex from Finvia. Welcome. Thank you. So let me just understand exactly, what have you been doing at Superventure so far? I arrived yesterday noon and I went to Superventure right away, had some meetings with some VCs, joined LP discussion, and yeah, that was, that was it. Then a, a short but good evening event and first good day. And which evening event did you know? Uh, it was Cavalry, Picos, Top Cap Partners, and IQ. Uh, that must have been fun. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> one, one bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, that's a good gang. That's a good gang. All right, awesome. But let's get into it. Daniel, tell us your journey into venture. How did you end up at Finvia? And exactly, you know, who are you? Yeah. So my journey into venture was pretty much like step by step. I've always been interested in, in, in three things, which is investing, which is helping others to do so, and, and startups. So already back then as a student, I tried all kinds of, of internships from wealth management and, and family offices also to the investing side, like a private equity fund or a hedge fund. And so I pretty much figured out my preferences by learning by doing approach. And I found my place in the multifamily office space because there I can work as an investment professional on the one hand, covering my investing interest, but on the other side also advising clients, so covering both. And I'm in a team where we do fund investments in the alternative investment space 
meaning private equity and venture capital, or to be more specific, buyout, growth, and, and VC. So VC is one of the disciplines I do there, but it's definitely the most exciting world. And this covers then the third interest that I have, which is startup. And I have to get us into then, you know, the pivotal moment in your career, because I know that because we've spoken about it before, but I think that that's a very interesting one to dive into now. Yeah, I mean, I don't have like one certain super pivotal moment, but one thing that changed me a little bit as how I think as an investor was back then when I was a student, I thought, okay, I'm studying business now, I'm smarter than everyone else, I am going to set up my stock portfolio. And so I was betting on a few stocks where I was most convinced about, very concentrated portfolio. And at first that did go very well, but then all of a sudden, as it sometimes happens, one of these companies faced bankruptcy. I lost a bunch of money. It also ruined the return of the entire portfolio. I think I'm not the only one that experienced this, but, but, but still, so it was where I thought, okay, damn it, what did I do wrong? And obviously I didn't think enough about portfolio construction, about basic things like diversification across different dimensions and so on. And this is where I started to think more about that. And then over time, I also realized that I'm more of an allocator rather than a stock picker. So I rather think about portfolio construction, diversification, financial planning now than about what stocks to pick. So I rather as an investor outsource the stock picking or picking the right startups to people who do this day in and day out. <laughs> and I'm more taking care of the overall portfolio construction, financial planning, and so, and so on. Yeah, and it, that is, of course, because we're going to dive into this now, the, the perspective of an M MFO and so on. But I just want to dive a bit more into that part with you're saying that is more my profile. Would you agree if I say that that is more the profile of the people that you will find in most MFOs and, and, and also single FOs? It's yeah. not stock pickers that are sitting there. It is allocators. It's mostly allocators. You might find some stock pickers that depends on which single family office or which multifamily office. Some of them also have large teams like dedicated investment teams like real estate, private equity, on the liquid side with stocks and so on. So this depends, but, but it's, I would say, mostly allocators. That, that's true. I mean, like, although I'm, I'm, I'm quite an analytical guy, I would say, but my biggest strength is still with people. And I think that's why I probably ended up also on the IP side, where you need a little bit of everything and, and you need to speak the, the, the language of the, of the client in the end also, right? Yeah. Take a star. I would love to hear your perspective on a statement that we hear quite often, which is, most families do pre-seed seed fund investments because they want to get access to co-invest. Some do, certainly. Some don't. I think single family offices, yeah, either because they want a connection or they see a connection to their family business, so they feel very good in that space, as I said earlier, or they want to do a lot of co-investments to, I don't know, blend down their average management fee. And then in the multifamily office space, yeah, some do and some, some don't because it depends again individually on the client, as I said, said, said earlier. And now I teased to our dear audience that we're going to dive into the topic of what's an MFO like, what's the perspectives, how do you think about venture capital, both as an asset class, but also venture capital just in Europe. How do you juxtapose Europe to the US and all those, those things? So my very first question to you is, Tell me, 
And you can either abstract this to MFOs in general or go more into FinVIA. That's up to you. But tell me, how do you think as an MFO? Yeah. So it, it very much depends because different multifamily offices may have different approaches or, or single-family offices. And let, let me talk in the perspective of a typical multifamily office rather than speaking for the entire industry and also rather than speaking for one individual company now. So typically, a multifamily office has a strategic asset allocation individually for each client, right? Because you manage the money of, of, of several people. And then this asset allocation covers all asset classes. And then there is the private equity and venture capital bucket. And then the investment team that covers that plays in that space, if you could, if you could say that. And there we also have a, a top-down approach. So we are structuring the portfolio again, like how much should be in buyout, how much should be in growth, how much should be in VC. And then within VC, it's again, like how much should be in the very early stage, how much in the late stage VC. And then what sectors, regions, managers, and then to diversify over vintages and so on, all the, the classic stuff that you do as an allocator. And this is, this is how we think. But of course, we want then access to great managers in the end, and we want to pick the right manager. Could I ask you, so you go through this process, but do you go through that, you know, you and the investment team at the MFO, and then you tell the principal, this is how we're going to do it? Or is it more of a, an iterative process together with the principal? Well, how much are you in the lead there and how much are they? Yeah. Again, this depends very much because if you have several clients, then some of them might be like large single family offices. So they are like SMA, separately managed accounts where you work very closely with them and you set up a very individual portfolio with them. So you're then in the end doing the due diligence process, maybe sourcing the managers and you also do the cash flow planning and the ramp up planning for the portfolio and so on. And there it's often then a back and forth, maybe that you are in the market, you, you find great managers, you show them to your client and then you discuss this and then it's a back and forth until you find in the end a decision. But there are also clients that are like, they are not that sophisticated. So they have a bunch of money, but they want to outsource everything. So they rather give everything to you as a multifamily office and they don't want to discuss maybe certain fund or something because they just don't have the knowledge about it, right? So there you, you might work a little bit differently. Or also if you set up fund of funds, then you, there you are discretionary. So you do your fundraising and then you allocate to the to the funds and give the commitments out. Just a split question for you as Daniel and from a multifamily office perspective, what is the average allocation in venture capital, whether it's emerging managers, established, early or growth, compared to other asset classes? What is it, is it in average for multifamily offices and what do you think is the right allocation? 5%, 10, 30, 70? Yeah, 70 is certainly a little bit <laughs> much. Probably you have 70. <laughs> no, but I would say that it, it, it depends so much on the individual client because depending on like what is the risk return profile that they have, how long do they want to invest the money, how much can they take in terms of illiquidity in their portfolio and so on. But then if you have like a bucket of, I don't know, 30% PE, then a part of that is again VC. And then I don't know if you do the entire math, then maybe, I don't know, a few percent of the entire portfolio of a large client is then in, in, in VC. And what would you think is the right number? Um, for me personally or for others? For, you personally. <laughs> for me personally, maybe like 20% would be great or 15%. Did this perception change over time looking at the up market and looking at the current market? For me not because I am working in the investment team. So I think uh, now actually it's also a great time to do commitments. 
but but that's my personal view. But I think when like a strategic asset allocation, you should always have like your your targets that you work towards, and then once you reach that target NAV, you should you should hold it, and then of course you can like turn it up a few percent or turn it down a few percent maybe over several years. But in the long run, I believe that you should you should stick stick to your strategic asset allocation. So I wouldn't change that a lot. Maybe now I would turn it a little bit up. But if you have a client that has cash flow constraints now or something, it's 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 the opposite. So it's on a side. Daniel, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on something because you spoke a bit about relationships. I'm really curious because you have very different types of clients working as an MFO, generally speaking, and you specifically as well, I guess. And you know, focusing on LP investing specifically, right? There's a financial perspective, but there's also the non-financial perspective, right? What do you want to get out of these relationships? And I guess, and you tell us, you, you enlighten me here, but I guess you have very different types of clients looking for very different types of things. So we have on the one extreme, the client that doesn't really care about that. They don't really want to see anything. They don't really want to have a relationship with these individual GPs. But I guess you might also have the other end where they do want to be involved. And, and could you just kind of share a bit how, how those relationships work and how you also help your clients navigate the relationships that they might want to build with the underlying GP? Yeah. So uh, usually if someone is a sophisticated investor, then they either want to have a direct conversation yeah. with the manager or, or they want to have a lot of conversations with the multifamily office investment professionals, right? So that yeah. uh, all the work you did, the fund analysis, the manager analysis, yeah. uh, the markets and everything. And so there you work very differently. And those clients, I, I think, are much more time consuming also, right? But they usually then can write larger checks. And then for the ones that give everything out of hand, those there you, as a multifamily office, you want to use also your, your platform. So to have some synergy effect. So what does that mean? If you source a manager, then you do not only want to like give it to one client. So if you have a large SMA again, and he asks you to source, I don't know, an emerging manager or emerging managers, that's fine. But then otherwise you try always to source a manager and then provide it to, to several families or individuals because that just makes sense as a multifamily office to, to use your platform then and, and then size. And it also makes you a more meaningful OP for every single. Yeah, definitely. That's, the, that's, sure. that's, yeah, that's the main yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious because one of the things that we're optimizing for when we work with, with with our partners is we are saying well we see for most of the people that end up knowing about us it's because they care about vc and they and typically it's not because they care about managers but it's because they care about startups and innovation and so on so the majority of the people that we have investing with us also the bigger clients of course or bigger partners they are doing it because they want to actually work with Mark. So when we're doing an investment to Mark, Mark's fund, then they're doing it, well, both with us because, because we've got the access and we you know, may have in some cases better terms than others because we either commit early or whatever, right? All that stuff. But they're also expecting us to facilitate that connection because in the end, they do it because they believe in the space and they want to know more about this space. And they probably also want to, get to know Vidisha, Mark, and, and Ingle. Do you ha have clients that are small that have those uh, you know, ambitions as well? And do you cater to that? How do you think about that? Sure. Like there are clients who have, I don't know, several million in net worth. So they are usually not big enough in the, in the old family office world to have in a family office. We try to digitize this, right? So also to give these people access to 
to the family office services. And there are people who then pick individual funds. So they don't, then they do not only do like a fund of fund, they pick individual funds where they know that they have higher risk and they read a lot about it, although they maybe in the end just write a 2,000, 100, yeah. 200,000 euro uh, check or something just because it's of their interest and they think that they can choose then what's best for, for them. Yeah. So we also have that. And then, of course, you are in discussions with, with these clients. Yeah. How many of the people you work with have an, like, an intrinsic motivation to actually gain knowledge? I mean, yes, of course, you, you, want, you want to be successful financially. You want to have certain returns. But how many of them are just like going to that? Like, I want to understand how VC works. This is my entry point. Throughout you guys, I'm going to get access to emerging established managers, learn from that, and maybe then spin off my own strategy and take my own family office or the private money to kind of invest into these. And does it differ between like the older generation and the new generation, which is coming right now? It, it differs definitely. And it, it, it then, in this case, it depends what is your target client group. So some multifamily office may have more like young founders who sold their company at some point, sit on a bunch of cash and then they, they need help. But they are very interested then in like getting access to other strong VC managers and also direct investments, co-investments. But on the other hand, if you have industrial families or something, maybe they are interested in like the, the VC economy, but maybe they, they don't want to have then the direct investments. Maybe they do if it has some connection to their family business or something, right, where they understand the space very well. Or if you have soccer players or something, again, there are some who are more sophisticated and some less. Some want to know more, some just want to give it out of hand. So the, the share always depends on what multifamily office are you talking about. We have clients across all of these sectors that are just totally or all these segments, right? So there are industrial families, there are the young founders, there are the, the soccer players, there are pe people who inherited money or something. And it's, it's actually quite, quite individual than what they, what they want and also what you can provide them. So of course, a large client, you can provide pretty much everything. If it's a small client, then there's also like some red line where, okay, how far can you go then? To, 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 to do all the work, to give them access to something very individual that you can maybe not leverage for your platform yep. for the others, right? Which type is your favorite? The one which is asking you and loves to understand or the one just says, Daniel, look, this is 40 million, just deploy it as you like. Yeah, I mean, as I work on the investment team, I love to have sophisticated clients and to discuss with them. So because you can also go much more into detail. And if you have clients that do not care so much about it, then you also, doing a lot of groundwork, you are like explaining very basic things about the asset class. And you, sometimes you don't even have to go into detail because it's just too much for some, right? So for me personally, I love to have deep discussions with sophisticated LPs or clients. But on the other hand, of course, if you want to scale up your business, then it's also good to have clients where you can make uh, faster decisions and it's not so much back and forth. Do you ever have families that, that, that send you deal flow in the sense that they say, ah, Mark reached out mm -hmm. to me. I, I kind of have you guys to deal with that stuff, but I met with him and I think he, he's pretty interesting. You know, it, yeah, it, we, we do. We do have clients that send us even pitch decks. I don't, sometimes they're not allowed probably, but they, they <laughs> uh, I don't want to say anything wrong here, but, but, but yeah, they, they send us names or managers or, or also like direct investment yeah. opportunities where we should have a look at. And then it's again about like what, what can you do and what can't you do? Like, I mean, we are talking to so many managers 
So I think that it's better that we source for them, but of course also it helps us if they know someone where we didn't look into so far and maybe it's interesting and then we set up a call. So this also happens from, from time to time, yeah. That's interesting and maybe it's a good segue into the next topic which I really wanted to dive into, which is how would you think about how emerging managers and established managers in Europe should approach an MFO? And then were you seeing them generally maybe going about it in the wrong way or thinking wrong about your process and how things actually are being done and so on? Yeah, I think the two things. One is like how you approach a family office or multifamily office. And then the other one is like, how do you interact with them when they committed to you or or if they didn't commit with commit to your fund, like how do you go on yeah. then? So the first point, how to approach like, yeah, shoot an email or a LinkedIn message or, 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 or at an event or whatsoever. And then if they get back to you, great. If not, then send a follow-up email or, or link the message, but don't send five within two weeks because that's then just, you burn it. <laughs> and then usually like offer an intro call, which is great. So that's very basic, right? But which is great. But the thing is then also like we get emails every week and not only one or two, but a lot. So there's also not the time to do so many intro calls. So now the question is like, how do we distinguish between who do we want to talk to and who not, or we just don't have the capacity to do so. So explanation of the strategy, of course, is great, but then usually a lot of VCs do that like, or emerging VCs with a short text on the email or, or, or LinkedIn. And I think what maybe would be a great idea, I would love that at least, but that's my personal perspective, to also offer to share some information, like a one-pager where you have an introduction on yourself, your background, your strategy, if you can share anything on the on the track record or so, because that helps them to very quickly gain an overview and and finding out if if this now is something where you you want to spend your time for for the first call instead of just jumping in, into a one hour intro call with everyone, right? That's what I would say there. And then if a family office gave you an, a commitment, then of course, keep them posted. So quarterly reports are great, but it's not enough. So at least twice a year, an update call or maybe offered every quarter. Maybe they don't even take it then, but, but twice a year, I think is good. Two or three times a year. And, and transparency and honesty is super, super important there. And then show your investment thesis on, on a certain company. And then in the future, let's discuss how that played out, the good and the bad examples. And even if a company, a multifamily office does not give you a commitment right away, then also still stay in touch with them. I think that's that's super important because yesterday I actually talked to a partner of a very well-known seed fund in Europe. And he said, raising the largest fund ever in the last 12 months is not the fundraising efforts we did in the last 12 months. It's the fundraising effort we did in the last 12 years, right? And that's the, that's the point. So stay in contact because fundraising is not something that you do once and then you take a big break and then in three years you start again. That's that's a huge mistake. I mean, it's sales 101, but but it's still a lot of emerging VCs, VCs I think, forget that that they constantly have to update everyone. It, it has to be efi efficient, of course, but I guess that's something you have to have the right setup for. If there's one single piece of information I could give to you as an emerging manager and I have one email and one shot, what would be the one you would love to read, which gets you hooked? So say, 
yes, I want to pick up my phone and jump on a call. Is it something about myself? Is it about the fund? Is it about the why? What's, what's the thing driving you which gets your interest? One information is very difficult. If I have to pick one information, then it's something about you, I would say, because in the end, it's always the people who matter. And, and a brand is great in the end, but people is who are the ones who are doing the deals. But, but, but usually, I would say, besides very short background information on you, it's also like, what is the strategy? Because, again, if you think from the perspective as an allocator, you have to be like, okay, what do I currently have a need for? Do I have a need for early stage VC? Do I have a need for late stage? Do I have a need for any other asset class? So you have to, you have to also make clear, like, what is your, what is your strategy? And if you have a track record already, then put some That put sounds some like a lot there. of pieces. That's, That's a lot of pieces. <laughs> I was like, I know, all right, I'm going to send you my resume, my track record, my deck as well, and some but background if, okay, on the thesis. A short sentence on, 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 on personal background and then strategy. How valuable is or how important for you is track record? Is it the benchmark? Is it the, the bouncer which actually gives you access to, to Finvia and, and yourself? Or is it like, yeah, it's okay if you have one, but if you're a newbie, just have been an angel and an auto operator before, it's, it's fair as well. So when you manage money for others, you're usually a bit more risk averse than if you manage your, your own money, simply because of the fact like, a lot of those clients, they are like, wow, I'm already invested in PE. Meaning, and by the way, I, I read something very cool yesterday or the day before yesterday on LinkedIn. I don't know who posted it. It must have been you. <laughs> oh, it was cool. And he said, he said as fundraising efforts, something was like PE and VC are not the same, but both are private equity. And, and, that's, and that's actually the, the, the reality when you talk to the client, like you talk about PE and then you always mean like buyout and growth. And then when you talk about VC, you talk about VC. Yeah. So, but to get back to the, to, the, to the point, when you manage money for others and then those people are already invested in PE and then VC is often something new for them and you have first have to educate them a little bit also on the asset class unless it's a very large SMA, as I said. But, but then the thing is like, if you pick an established manager with a large team, institutional setup, a long and strong track record, then you de-risk it somehow, right? And then if you choose emerging managers where you're like, okay, I can get better returns there. If things go well and everything works out, then in 10 years, the client comes back and says like, great job. But you also says, yeah, but it is your job, right? If things do not go so well, then he comes back, he looks at the portfolio and he points at you and he asks you, why did you choose a first time fund rather than an established manager? And now, like this didn't go so well. So there's the risk that you have as an allocator. And that, so personally, I might do something different with my money. So I would love to give, if, if, I mean, I'm, I'm not super wealthy, but if I was, then I would give more money probably to emerging managers. But when you manage money for others, you have to be more careful. And then probably you look at a good track record and, and choose some established managers. And then the, the, the emerging VCs are something that is the satellite investment. And, what is the perceived threshold in terms of IRR, MOIC, whatever you want to take as a measure for a principal or like somebody who's giving you money to allocate that he would say, this was a fantastic investment? Is it the private market equivalent? Is it the peer vintage numbers? Yeah. How do they benchmark saying, hey, this was great. Is 7% great? Is 30% great IRR? Yeah. What is it? 
So how we benchmark is we, 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 we cut everything into vintages and then we look at the peer group. So we use like Prequin or something, yeah. right? This is how we benchmark and this is also how I think that private market funds should be assessed and you should judge them on, on that way. But you, most importantly, that they don't lose money. <laughs> and, and then, I don't know, like we have like the PE-like, uh, the buyout-like returns, the VC-like returns. And if it's somewhere in that range, that's, that's fine. And if you have a great vintage, then you want better returns. If you have a, a bad vintage, then of course, like if market goes down, you simply cannot save yourself from it. So a minimum of double digit yeah. lower bound IRRs would be like, hey, this is in a VC, great yeah, it would, No, yeah, it has to be double digit in VC, yeah. I would say. <laughs> So one question I have is, so, so I, I really like like when GPLP relationships, I like when they start very much on this perspective, the GP trying to understand the LP expectations, right? So I think like first ideal first meeting, right? Between a potential LP and a GP pitching is not necessarily going through a pitch deck. I, I actually hate that to be very honest. I like it very much when, and I'm talking like about ourselves here, when they engage with us, the GPs, and they ask us about okay, what are the type of things that we're looking for, what do we get excited about, what are the type of relationships that we want to have, et cetera, et cetera, because you know, there's amazing invest GPs out there, investors out there, that are just not for us for soft reasons, right? Which is a very fair thing. They're still amazing investors, just not a deal for us, right? But I wonder when you have like a plethora of different clients, and you have a, also a plethora of different mandates, are you able to give clarity to GPs at that level in the early stages of a relationship? Or do you actually need more time to build a relationship to also be able to come back to them and say, well, we have this mandate for this group of clients or this specific, whatever that is, right, the specific account. And, and how, how can you manage that relationship the best way with a GP, but also we have a lot of GPs listening here, right? So how could they actually build that relationship with you when they reach out to you? Yeah, if it's a, a new contact, then I, like usually we need some time to 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 gain trust especially in the vc space in the P and th then the point is again like if it's an established manager or if it's an emerging manager and honestly yeah, of course like a, a first time fund it just takes more time to gain trust and it takes several meetings and and a lot of discussions and and that's why I'll say again like even if they don't commit with you in the first fund stay in contact because then if you do great and they regret it and then in the in the second fund that you raise it's it's much easier than and you have done all the work then already but it's still so much relationship building and it, it still takes time and some single family offices might be more opportunistic than others and then in the multi-family office space is the same but again you manage money for others so you are a bit more careful with with how, how fast you give a commitment out Daniel, we're going to ask you to give a shout out to co-investor Angel LP for being awesome. And please do share briefly the story behind that awesomeness. Okay. Very briefly, as we are here in Germany for this episode, I'm going to stick to the German market <laughs> and I'm going to make it very, very simple. HV Capital, because they are one of the first German VCs that make their succession plans reality. So handing it the GP from one generation to the other one. And I think this is something a lot of GPs have to do in the future. And this is also something a lot of VCs have to think about because this is what LPs want, that this marriage goes on, even though the one who founded it is not there anymore at some point, right? And that it becomes from a one-man show or from 
a show that is about a few people and that, that at some point grow old, that there's also another generation, that the setup is something that as an LP you feel, okay, I can work with them 20 years and I can re-up with them because this is what we want, right? We want to re-up in the future once we build that relationship. I'd love to take us into the three biggest learnings from your LP investing. And I'd love you to just give us, give us the rundown first and then let's dive into the food. So first one would be the people are most important. Like a great brand is great, but it doesn't help if the people who build it up, who made all the deals are not there anymore. Because in the end, of course, the people are the ones who do the deals and make the decisions. So that, that's most important. Secondly, don't try to time the market. You can't in VC, especially not as an LP. It's impossible. Some LPs still think they can. No one can, of course. Can't. So, and then the third one would be always keep an eye on your on your asset allocation and 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 cash flow planning, especially in these times. That's important. I'd love to then, and it's probably a combination of the the second and the third, because we've had many conversations during our or especially at least these last two days here at uh, at SuperVenture with LPs talking about you know the cycle that we've just gone through and you know either we will have published it or, or it'll come later one of our episodes we have our mirror from aqvc saying well we've we're coming off a period where we started saying we want to see four or five x in the decks and and now that's turning out to be the bit just where we're all expecting well even even good vcs should be happy with two x <laughs> so so your reflections on, on, because we spoke a lot with him about how do you then, as a fund of fund, communicate that to your LPs? Because they have been very much the ones, you know, or typically fund of funds are the vocal LPs, right? Because they're raising capital. So they're also the ones that have been standing up there <laughs> on the pedestal screaming, four, five X, this is VC. And now they need to kind of backtrack from that. As a family office or multifamily office, you guys have lived a more quiet life. So you probably haven't been out there screaming that at least from the soapboxes for everyone to hear, but likely you have spoken to your 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 clients, your families about what to expect from venture, and and now that's probably a different talk than what you had the last two years, or is it? That's a that's a good question. The way we approach it is we are always very conservative, so whether it's in our strategic asset allocation and we uh, put a return, an expected return on each asset class, or it's if we talk with the client about different asset classes, we always try to lower the high expectations. So we, we never said like, look, you can make 5x with this because in the end, if it turns out to be a 5x fund, that's amazing then. But if it doesn't, if it's, if it's 3x, then he still complains. <laughs> So, so we, we, the way we always approach this to be more conservative and then do not give this high return targets. And I think that's the right way for a multifamily office or a wealth manager or, or so on to, to approach this in every asset class and always, no matter what, what time it is. Yeah. We, we still do the same. So how, how, how do you bridge the challenge with your investors? When they deployed in 21, 22 into funds, the funds went into deployment. You having the knowledge today, looking back, well, these vintages will not be too fancy after all. How do you tell them like, look, but this is the time because the next two vintages, they will be fantastic as we're speaking about timing. I can time the market. You can either. None of us can. But you have to show them and tell them like, actually, now you have to invest after you told them two years ago. Now you have to invest. Yeah. The point is, 
we always tell them to invest now because it's just about time diversification, simple as that. Like just take every vintage, don't miss a vintage. Yeah? And then you have, you pretty much have this cost average effect in the long run. And, and so, and we, no one knew that in 221, this was the highest point. Of course, the market was hot and everyone said that, but no one knew that in 222, the things happened that happened. So, so it's just constantly committing every year, year by year, and not looking so much at where's the market now. Is maybe this year the best vintage, or maybe is it next year, or is it in two years? I mean, from historical data, we can say that if you look back at the global financial crisis, and no matter if you look at buyout funds or if you look at VC funds, you could see that the commitments during the crisis and after the crisis, like they, they went down, so there were less commitments from LPs, but the, the returns, the TVPIs and the IRRs of those funds from those vintages during the crisis and after the crisis went up to the ones before, of course. It's like easier said, but, but, but still it's like, I wouldn't say put all your money this year. I would just say, do the same as you did in the last couple of years, commit every year. It's, it's very interesting. There's an inverse correlation between dry powder and venture capital in the market and TVPI performance. So if there's a lot of money in the market, TVPI goes down. If there's not too much money in the market, TVPI goes up. And that's why you can actually put this over the, the time span of the past 20 years and say, look, if we're in a recession, there's less money and TV price goes down. So it goes like this. It's, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So Yeah. What, what, what I also find interesting, like why do commitments go down in certain periods? Like, of course, on the one hand, it's, it's fear that even professional peers are like, okay, ah, I'd rather stay a little bit on the sideline now. I wait this year and so on, right? But on the other hand, it's also, I think, that there are also sophisticated LPs that still want to invest, but they can't because of these things that everyone knows, like the nominator effect or so, but also because of cash flow constraints, because everyone is like having his cash flow model and planning with some distributions. And then suddenly you realize, oh my God, this turns out to be in two, three plus years later. And then you're like, okay, damn it, can I actually still commit? Because like in 220, 221, a lot of them, overcommitted from what they should have done and now they realize that this might be a problem. It's interesting. I, I would have assumed that for you it would be rather discussion around inflation and interest. Why would I put my money into a not liquid asset class where I have distributions in seven, eight, nine years if I can put my money into bonds, if I put my money into a kind of fixed income because right now it yields way more than in a negative interest environment and it becomes more attractive because the spread between this and venture capital, if you don't perform in the top quartile, mm. is not that big. But the risk is completely, it's like detached. It, it definitely. So if people have, again, the chance to make good returns with bonds and so on, of course, then they have more options again. And of course, this is something that also drove up the, the private markets in the last couple of years when interest rates went down and down and down. So you don't have so many alternatives. But so I think it's a combination of all of these reasons that we just talked about that drives commitments down in certain periods and then up again in other periods. I think that this whole discussion is incredibly interesting. We could go on forever, but I want to take us into the quick fire round. <laughs> and now the quick fire What advice would you give your own 10 year younger self? Okay, I think it would be three quick advices. First, admit your strengths and weaknesses and do more of what you're actually really good at and less of what you're bad at. And the things that you are bad at, give it to someone who's great at it. Very easy. <laughs> Second thing, don't compare yourself to others and 
do things your way. And the third thing, maybe when it comes to investing, everything that has to do with equities, no matter if it's public or private markets, always think in the long run. Like 10 years ago, I think I had my basis wrong. So I was looking on when I built my stock portfolio too much on on short term returns also. Right. And I recently, recently a student reminded me. So I'm, I'm a lecturer at a, at a business school in Munich and a master student asked me, Mr. Shex, where do you think that the Nasdaq goes in the next two years? And I looked at him and I was like, I don't know. And he said, come on. Just roughly, Mr. Shanks. <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball. I don't. I don't know. And so we we talked a little bit, and I said like I, I advised him to maybe look rather into like long-term factor investing based on ETFs because I very much believe in that in liquid markets. But let's not get, go into this now. But it just reminded me that it's so important to get your basis right and the way you think about investing. And I would say that 10 years ago I didn't think enough about the long term, and this is something that I would give my own advice to my own self 10 years ago. What are your top tips for emerging VCs who are now fundraising across Europe? Oh, top tips. So especially in the current market environment, it's important to have the right arguments why your strategy may work in the next couple of, of years. So so that's important. Then it is a, a 20 plus year game. So make sure that potential LPs feel that this might be your final career step because it's like a marriage. You're marrying the LP. You work together for at least 10 to 12, 10 to 13 years. And if you raise a second and a third fund, then it's already like 20 years or something, right? So so this is important. And then also if you have code GPs, if you do this with someone else, then also this has to be a good fit because also that is a, is a long marriage and LPs need to feel that, that this is a great team that works together very well because LPs hate divorces at some point. And it sometimes happens, uh, but this might be toxic for future re-ups or for potential new LPs if they see that two out of three dropped out last year. So it's not, not, not a good thing. So that, that's important to, to transfer that. And then don't be too demanding when it comes to ticket size, because I think especially as an emerging manager, it's also a lot about relationship building and trust and familiarity and, and, and building this network. And then, yeah, try to get LPs, of course, that add value. And, and, and most importantly, and this is what I said earlier already, if a family office or a multifamily office does not give you a commitment in the first fund, keep them posted over the next two, three years. Give them two update calls a year. You do so much of the work then already. And fundraising is something that goes on forever. It's not something you take a big break from. And I think this is the thing that is most important that emerging VCs do not forget their, their potential piece that did not invest yet. That's, that's pretty much it, I would say. That, that was a strong set, I think. <laughs> so, finally, what is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started in venture? Mm, okay, so I think that a lot of professional LPs, they think rationally and they act rationally, but still in times when you have strong returns and everything is, is a good environment, then everyone is like, yeah, we need to commit now and, and, and they want to invest. And they still say, Vintage diversification is important, but then when the market sentiment turns around and it's it's not so good anymore and returns are are are, are going down, then suddenly there is some fear or maybe they overcommitted in the past, as I said, and and suddenly they stay on the sideline and wait a bit until there's better weather. And this is something that's a little bit counterintuitive to me that even some really really professional LPs that I that I talk to do not 
act so rationally sometimes. <laughs> awesome. Thanks a million, Daniel. It was amazing to have you with us here. Mark, thanks so much for hosting us here. Pleasure. Thank you very much for Thank joining you. us. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone, if you enjoyed this episode of the European VC podcast, drop us a review, follow the pod and subscribe at EU.VC. I'm Andreas, the hype man, joined by my dear co-host, David, the LP syndicate lead. Thank you so much for tuning in today and can't wait to see you all out there. And now some words from our beloved sponsor. Discover the tech and investment opportunities fueling growth across UAE, MENA and APMEA regions at Expand, Northstar and Jitex Global now the world's largest tech and startup event. Join 1,400 exhibiting startups and 1,000 investors at Dubai Harbour from the 15th to the 18th of October 2023 to scout for your next big deal, connect with other investors and meet public and private stakeholders to elevate your fund goals. Co-located with Fintech Surge and Future Blockchain Summit and in association with Jitex Global, you'll be serviced with an agenda over four action-packed days with a curated meetings program, the invite-only investor forum, the venture studio and accelerator summit, and additionally, exclusive satellite events for fund managers in town. Don't miss out and register now at expandnorthstar.com forward slash EUVC. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values, of values, United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting.